So here we go. So we're starting chapter six, Mishnah one. We're going to go through three Mishnahs in depth, and then if we have time, we'll continue going through the rest, or we'll discuss them, okay? Mm-hmm. okay. So here we go, Mishnah one. So the sage is expounded in the language of the Mishnah. And like Ruby pointed out, chapter six is really different than the other five um, in many different ways, but it's just a different style. It's a little bit more technical, a little more interesting. So our mayor would say, whoever studies Torah for Torah's sake alone merits many things. Not only that, but the creation of the entire world is worthwhile for him alone. He is called friend, beloved, lover of God, lover of humanity, rejoicer of God, rejoicer of humanity. The Torah enclothes him with humility and awe, makes him fit to be righteous, pious, correct, and faithful, distances him from sin and brings him close to merit. From him, people enjoy counsel and wisdom, understanding and power as is stated. Mine are counsel and wisdom. I am understanding. Mine is power. The Torah grants him sovereignty, dominion, and jurisprudence. The Torah's secrets are revealed to him, and he becomes as an ever-increasing wellspring, as an unceasing river. When have you last heard the, someone use the word jurisprudence? Can't even, jurisprudence. Very exciting. <laughs> he becomes modest, patient, and forgiving of insults, and the Torah uplifts him and makes him greater than all creations. Okay? So over here, he doesn't really explicitly mention this in the Mishnah, but the idea that we're going to go into, because he mentions sovereignty, he mentions the idea of the way governing, basically, is what's the Torah's view on church and state, right? There's a famous thing in general throughout history is that there's always two powers that rule a country, any country, is the church and state. Famously, Israel has the Rabbanut and they have the government. They each have their thing that they run, how they run things. And America has it, any, pretty much any normal country has the church and state. So the question is, how does the Torah view how we should divide those powers? How much power should go to the church? How much power should go to the state? So if you go to the first Mishnah, all the way back to the beginning, now that we're finishing off the sixth chapter, we can tie it all together. If you go back to the first Mishnah, it talks about the Mesorah, right? And it says, Moshe got the Torah and he gave it to Yeshua. And Yeshua got it and he gave it over. And they passed it down from generation to generation, right? Who got the Torah the first time was Moshe Rabbeinu. How was the power divided in those days? Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader in every single aspect. He was the judge. He was the king, he was the Navi, he was everything. There was no other leader of Israel. There was just Moshe. But then we see what happens throughout the generations is you end up having a system where you have a Navi and a king. Like famously, you have Shmuel Hanavi and David HaMelech. Shmuel Hanavi and King Shaul. King Chizkiah and Yeshaya. You know, you have this pair where there's one guy who's the, the Navi or the Rebbe and there's another guy who's the king who runs the government. There's a problem with that. Why? Unfortunately... <laughs> you gave an example of Chizkiyo uh, and, and Yishayahu, where what happens is we know the famous story where Yishayahu says, hey, Chizkiyo should come to me. And Chizkiyo says, of course, I'm the Navi. And Chizkiyo says, I'm the king. Yishayahu could come to me. You know, and it was, that was not good. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. And that's why it actually says, meaning how do we answer this question, is by exactly looking at these examples, what did the Torah give? How did they do it? How did they set it up? And what's the ideal? So we have, originally Hashem said, I want there to be one guy. Moshe Rabbeinu was everything. He was leader, king, judge, navi, all of the above. Then because of Yurida Sadoros, you could say there was a, you know, people weren't strong enough. It had to be divided. It's too much power in one person's hands. So you have a navi and you have a king. 
But what, do we, what does the Rambam say is going to be when the final Messiah comes? When Mashiach comes, how is it going to be? It says he is going to be both. He is going to be both, exactly like Moshe Rabbeinu. He's going to be both the king of the government and he is going to be the religious ruler. Now, what's interesting about that is that it describes, the question is, what is the trait that they lost, that we lost throughout the generations that makes somebody incapable of being both? Why do you have to have it divided, church and state? Why only Moshe Rabbeinu and then Mashiach? What about all these people in between? And the answer is, you look at Moshe Rabbeinu. What was unique about Moshe Rabbeinu? is he was the most humble man in the whole world. I mean, he said, I know, it's not that what he had real humility. It's not that he said, I'm a little shmata and people could step on me and I'm a nobody and oh, boo-hoo, I can't do anything. He knew that he was a great guy. He knew he was talented. He knew he was a leader. But he said, if somebody else would have the same talents as me from God, they would be more talented than me. And he knew it was all from God and he knew his place and he knew how to, that to be thankful to Hashem. That made him a great leader. That is something, that's the one trait that really we're lacking now, we've been lacking for thousands of years, of real humility, real humility. And why real humility? Because a real ruler needs to be able to say what is needed for the community. So that it shouldn't be, oh, how much more time do I need to speak or what do I need for my honor? It should be, what does the community need right now? And that takes real humility. And that's what the leader needs. Okay. Well, so you have to be willing to admit that you're wrong. Yes, admit that you're wrong from humility. That's the only way, no? <laughs> I mean, you talk about him like he's like a cousin or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Now we're going to skip to Mishnah 3, okay? Second lesson of this, of this uh, chapter 6. Mishnah 3 goes like this. One who learns from his fellow a single chapter or a single law or a single verse or a single word or even a single letter, he must treat him with respect. For so we find with King David of Israel, who did not learn anything from Ahitophel except for two things alone, yet he called him his master, his guide, and his intimate, as is stated in Tehillim, and you are a man of my worth, my guide, and intimate friend. Surely we can infer a lesson from this. If David, king of Israel, who learned nothing from Ahitophel except for two things alone, nevertheless referred to him as his master, guide, and intimate, it certainly goes without saying that one who learns from his fellow a single chapter, a law, a verse, a saying, or even a single letter is obligated to revere him. And there is no reverence but Torah, as is stated, the sages shall inherit honor, and the integral shall inherit good. And there is no good but Torah, as it is said, I have given you a good purchase, my Torah, do not forsake it. Okay? So if you look at this over here, you see something very interesting. Over here it mentions that when you're learning Torah, right? When you learn Torah from your friend, how you have to treat him as your master, how he needs to be treated, okay? So we see that when it comes to Torah, in general, it uses the word Isaac Batayra, right? Osik means to be involved in Torah. It doesn't say just to learn it or to study it or whatever. It says to be Isaac, to be Osik Batayra, right? And what's interesting about that word, Osik usually has a connotation of business, Osik is word for business. Somebody goes to the marketplace, they're a merchant, they're a stockbroker, they're on Wall Street. He's Osik by Wall Street. He's Osik by stocks. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word for business. And the Torah uses the same word for, for, um, to learn Torah. Why is that? Why? You see, you got very excited when, the word, when this came up. What are you excited about? No, it's just, uh, there's it another word. It's Torah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's also like, like you have to really toil you know, it could be a mistake. You know, it could also be a male Torah. Of course, you always say that you uh, 
the purpose of learning is to be is to the action. Yeah. You know. So obviously, the, it's like a business. It's that you you're investing. You know, it's investing in yourself, and hopefully that you'll be able to you know, provide all sorts for others. You know. So you never, and you never know how much time it takes until you know. The produce. Sometimes it could be decades. You know, you you have the thing. <coughs> you're teaching somebody. You never know that it could be two years from now. It could be instantaneous or whatever it is. The investment is worth its while. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that's over here. There's a few lessons, like very practical lessons, that you learn of what it means that Torah is a business. What does it mean Torah is a business? So number one, a good businessman doesn't just leave his money in the bank, right? A good businessman who has savings, it's funny because today actually, if you'll see, there's a new thing that's going around on social media where they have this thing where they're showing kids how to get rich fast. And these kids are watching these 30 second videos or 10 second videos where some guy gets up there, nobody knows how much money he has, how successful he is, and he tells the kid 10 seconds exactly how you, what you need to be rich. And they'll say things which actually do have some basis in reality, they'll say things like, you need to invest in real estate because real estate is passive income. They're very into saying passive income. Sure. That you just, your money works for you. You don't do anything and your money's working for you as if that's how you start, right? Just passive income. You'll be a millionaire and just put all your money into real estate. You'll be a millionaire in two years. Telling like teenagers, like 16 year olds are watching this. But really that's a business mentality. So that if somebody, a businessman, not only does he not leave his money in the bank, but he's also taking out loans, which I once saw like, economically how it works the whole loan like being america being 33 trillion million what is it 33 trillion dollars in debt almost 32 almost 33 trillion and they're going to raise it what does that actually mean debt is the way that things grow you can't actually like when somebody goes and buys a house you're not a, it's not smart business wise if you pay for the whole house in one shot it's smart if you put a down payment and then now you have 80% more than what your money can get now you have something of value that's good business so the Torah is telling you that's the way it should be with Torah, not just with your money, that you should be thinking, how could I take my money and triple it or quadruple it? And I'm always looking, how could I make more passive income, stocks, bonds, whatever it is to make more money? That's exactly the same way it should be with Torah. And not just how you learn Torah, but how you reach out to others with Torah, that you're innovative. You're not just sitting there and saying, okay, when, when is there going to be a class that I'm going to get on my phone, you know, a Spotify link that I'm going to listen to a shir, or I'm going to come to the class. When is it going to happen? It's more like I'm active, I'm proactive, the same way in business. I don't just let my money sit in the bank. I let my money work for me. I'm always proactive. So that's one lesson of why Torah is compared to business. What? How do you do that? How do you do that? Meaning, for example, if you make your own learning uh, chavrusa or yourself to learn something. Meaning, not necessarily, because we're not getting into innovative right now, being proactive. And instead of saying, oh, I'm going to wait till somebody calls me to learn with me, I'm going to wait till somebody posts that there's a class and it's like really in my face that I should learn. I want to learn something. Which means, you'll one see, example. You'll seek out Chavrusa. Yeah. You know. And you pick your own topic. Meaning not just a topic, let's say Perkei but You say, oh, I want to learn Gemara. And I want to learn this Masefta. I want to learn Tanya. I want to learn Nitivot Olam. I want to pick any topic that I want and I want to learn it. And maybe I'll find someone to learn. Maybe I won't find someone to learn. But I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to be active in my Judaism. Instead of just sitting, waiting to be nudged. You know, waiting for the rabbi to harass me or waiting for my friend to harass me or to this, whatever it is, you know? Exactly. So that's one example. Second way that business is like Torah is that if you look, what you always say the famous thing of Yisachar and Zvulun, right? That's the partnership of Torah and business. 
What did Zvulun get? When they were giving out the portions of Eretz Yisrael, what did Zvulun get? Zvulun basically got the equivalent, I don't know if it's exactly the same place, but they got the equivalent of Haifa. They got the ports. Because what do you need a port for? Why should Zvulun have the ports? Because that's what business is. Meaning that in your learning of Torah, you shouldn't be stagnant in your place. You should always be going out. You should be mobile. A good businessman is always on business trips. He's always at a conference. He always has to go somewhere. He didn't just sit in his office. He goes out into the streets. That's more talking about spreading Torah. That when it comes to spreading Torah, you don't just decide, okay, I'm going to sit at home even more than the first one. It's taking it to the next level. That not just you sit at home and you learn yourself, you go and ask somebody to make a chavrusa. And now a second guy is going to learn Torah. You're being mobile, you're advancing, you're being proactive, and now you're creating more Torah in your whole neighborhood. Okay? And the third way that Torah is compared to business is in the entrepreneurial aspect, which over there, probably the best example today, meaning I know recently he tweeted something which got him into hot water. I didn't read the tweet, so I don't know what it is. I don't know if I could quote him now, if he's still kosher, but Elon Musk is like the typical, now today he is the entrepreneur. He's South African. South African, South African yes? Excellent. <laughs> yeah, he's the entrepreneur. And you see the way he does business is it's not just that he, oh, he decides, okay, I'm going to find a better way to make more money. I'm going to do a different, like, fine idea. He goes to a completely different stratosphere than anybody else is thinking. Like, just one example. People always talk about Tesla, Tesla, SpaceX. Like, these are things, Tesla at its time, the electric car that came out years and years ago, unbelievable. You know, like shifting the whole car market to electric vehicles, unbelievable. Then he's SpaceX, which is, Meaning he literally has people flying to the moon. He just, just now built a huge rocket and it blew up, totally failed. If you watch the thing, they sent it, they launched it, blew up after a few seconds and they were all excited. Everyone was clapping because that's science. They're, they're innovating, they're going forward. They're failing and knowing that that failure is bringing them a huge step towards a success. And he has another company, which people only be able to talk about the first two. There's one called Neuralink which that one is going to take years until it's really practical and is like, you know, earth shattering like the other two, but taking a computer chip and essentially implanting it into a human being's brain and being able to, in the most simple application, being able to play a video game that you could sit in a video in front of a, a video screen. You could have this computer chip in your brain and you could move the screen. If you're playing with a race car, you play with a thing with your eyes, whatever. And they already tested this on monkeys. This is a real practical. This is not a, you know, uh, uh, either a dream or a nightmare, however you view that, it's, this is a reality that's coming quick. And the, the chip, his idea, the imagination that he has for the chip, it's not practical yet, is that it can chemically control a person's brain. Which means, for example, like people who have depression. Depression, generally speaking, is not just a feeling of, oh, somebody hurt me, so I'm feeling bad. Or today I lost some money, I'm feeling bad. Or something. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. And how do you correct the chemical imbalance? So people have pills, whatever. This chip would be a way of just, oh, all of a sudden we see this chemical, just fixing the whole thing and monitoring the human being's brain. A crazy thing. And he thinks to a whole other planet. He's in a different galaxy of the way some people want to make money. They think, oh, I'm going to look into this real estate market or where people are moving to. No one saw that real estate market. That's not innovation. You know, that's a way of, I'm going to make more money. I'm going to find the hole in the market. That's not innovation. Innovation is going to a different place of what can be done. So innovation really is very connected to, I think when it comes to Torah, much more with outreach. Because, meaning when you're learning Torah yourself, there's not really many ways to innovate tremendously if you're not going to change the Torah, which God forbid you change the Torah. But to innovate in how we're able to bring Torah into this world today. 
Because the reality is, and why do I say that as a practical thing? I'm not just saying innovate in Torah and then it's like a fluffy concept. The reality is that today, there's a young generation. There's the young generation of my generation, and there's the children of this generation. They likely will not attach to the Torah the same way every other generation did. They weren't raised that you just sit down in a room and you're just going to listen to, oh, the rabbi talk, the minion, sit in your seat, be quiet. They're raised in a generation of instant gratification. And not instant like five minutes, instant like you're bored for two seconds. You can watch 50 videos of 10 seconds that will be showing you a whale in the ocean, showing you space stations, showing you somebody doing to be entertained like this. So this generation is going to need a new way of being actually involved in Judaism. It's not going to work. The simple, like, you know, boring, dreary ways, we're forced to innovate. And we see that. We see that. We see preeminent rabbis. I saw Y.Y. Jacobson. He makes these videos on TikTok and on these platforms where he's connecting with these kids. And you see many people. There's a guy named Nahi Gordon. I think his name is Nahi Gordon. He makes a video, a podcast called The Meaningful Minute or something. He has millions of followers. He's a young guy. Uh, Gingy looks like he's in his 20s. Unbelievable. Um, you know, what he's doing on Spotify. And I think that this idea of innovation, it's not just something for Elon Musk or for all these companies. Like I saw a few examples of innovation where Google, for example, they used to have Google Maps where the way it would work is they had thousands of people sitting in a room and they were taking addresses and they would write them down. And that's how they would make Google Maps. One day, guy walks in, he says, we're done with this. He makes this thing called Google Brain. It's called Google Brain, where what it does is the system, pretty much like AI, where it just takes from online, from the database, from the cloud, whatever you want to call it, all the addresses. And within an hour, it could put down the entire Google Maps of France. I mean, you're talking about before this happened, you had thousands of people sitting down for weeks, putting the addresses, let's say for France, this machine could do it in one hour. <coughs> so Google didn't become a trillion dollar company. I don't think it's actually a trillion, but something like that. And say, okay, fine, we're going to rest on our laurels now. Google said everything we're going to do, we're going to do to the most high intense efficiency possible. We're never going to stop. We're always going to jump to the next level, to the next level. That's the way it's got to be done. And you see that in business, all the companies that didn't do that, the companies that at the time seemed like they were unstoppable and seemed like they were titans in business have gone out of business. Like you have BlackBerry. I don't know if anybody remembers, but everybody had BlackBerry. BlackBerry was like the iPhones. Like nobody could beat the BlackBerry. BlackBerry was invincible, right? Now, when was the last time you saw somebody use a BlackBerry? I actually saw, I think it was a politician <clears throat> or someone using a BlackBerry. I think it has high security or something, but it's gone. It's a dinosaur, BlackBerry, like that. Yesterday, everybody had BBM. Now nobody has it. You have, what? What is BBM? BBM's Black, um, Blueberry, BlackBerry, Blackberry, Blackberry Messenger. Messenger. If you had a BlackBerry, you could message other people that had a BlackBerry. Oh. Like I messaged with iPhone, right? It was like this club almost, you know? Then you have Polaroid. You Kodak, like Kodak, these, yeah. these camera companies, dinosaurs, gone. Because now everybody, I can take a picture with my iPhone that was better than any Polaroid you ever had. And Blockbuster. You know that Blockbuster, before everyone here knew, you know Blockbuster? Blockbuster, before they went out of business, basically by Netflix and all these streaming platforms, Blockbuster was offered in the year 2000 for $50 million to buy Netflix, Okay. Today, Netflix is worth $144 billion. So you basically see how whenever a company sits down and says, we are extremely successful, we're dominating the market, we're on top of the world, we're just going to skate through and we're just going to surf through life, 
they will become a dinosaur extremely quick. And Jeff Bezos once said this at a meeting actually with all of his employees. He said, we are one day, he said this to his employees, which is a very interesting speech because I read the actual, um, what's it called? When you have the actual words of exactly what he said, I forgot. He, he said a speech to his employees that we one day will be a dinosaur. One day we will not exist. Today you walk around Amazon, he said this in their headquarters. You look at our headquarters, you look at Amazon, what we are, you think we are unstoppable, we're invincible. He said, let me tell you all something. We are completely mortal. We are completely not invincible. One day we will not exist and we will be a memory of the past. Amazon will be a memory in history. And he said, the only way we're gonna push off that day as long as possible is that we're always gonna stay ahead of the market. We're always gonna think, what does the customer want? What does the customer need? He said, the second we don't think like that and we say, oh, we're good, that's it, done. So that mentality we need to apply to Torah because there's nothing more important than to us in the entire world than Torah. That is the bloodline, that is the flesh, bones, sinews, everything of what it means to be a Jew. And if we let Torah just be something that we keep doing in an old, boring, dreary, monotonous way, it will end up being something of the past. So that's something that we need to always remember and need to know, especially for the younger generation, not just us, that maybe we're comfortable, we have a great zone, we go to Kiddush, we have a shul, we have our community, it's great. But the younger generation, not so simple. That's something you have to keep in mind. Okay, and then the final Mishnah that we're gonna do in this uh, sheer style is Mishnah 11. Mishnah 11, which I believe is the final Mishnah. Yes, the final Mishnah of chapter six, so we could do a little seum. It says like this, everything that God created in his world, he did not create but for his glory. As is stated in Yeshaya, all that is called by my name and for my glory, I created it, formed it, also I made it. And it says in Exodus, God shall reign forever and ever. Now over here, there's a very interesting verbiage, which is actually a bit of a machloket in the Talmud, which is there's two different ways of saying this line. There's one way of saying, which one? The one of, the, the line of everything that God created in his world, mm-hmm. he did not create but for his glory. Okay? So there's two ways of saying that line. There's one way of saying it that says, I was created to serve my creator, which means when I say I was created to serve my creator, the Gemara argues about this. If someone says I was created to serve my creator, what does that essentially mean? It means you were created, you are a being, you're an existence of your own, you're a creation, and you were created for the purpose of serving your creator. Okay? But the other way of saying it is that I was not created but to serve my creator, which is the way it says it here in Pekriyavu, which means that without the idea of serving God, you were not created. You have no existence other than the fact that you serve God. And the way Pekriyavu says it is that you have no existence other than God's glory, which over here, it's telling you a very powerful idea. And we're going to end off with this, with the sheer aspect. And then we'll probably read inside because it's a very short chapter is that over here, he's telling you a very, very powerful idea. When you look at the world, the world will say a muscle of the world for somebody building a home, right? When somebody builds a home, they have wood, they have steel, depending on what house they're building, maybe they'll have fancy glass, I don't know what, maybe they'll have a pool, ceramic, I don't know exactly all the materials it takes for a house. But they have all the materials. They have the builders, they have the contractors, the architect, everything, right? But what leads the whole project? is the blueprint. The blueprint is what tells you what you need to do with all the materials that you have in order to build this home the way that you want it to be. So that is exactly what God gave us when we have this world. 
everything we have here in front of you, everything in the world, every beautiful piece of architecture, every beautiful human being, every beautiful you know, piece of grass, mountain, the sky, the ocean, the beautiful Mediterranean, every bit of it is material to build something. God gave us everything and said, I'm giving you the blueprint. Here's the blueprint, that's the Torah. Look in the Torah and you will find everything that you need to know. If you follow the Torah, you are going to do and you're going to fulfill exactly what God's vision and dream was for this universe. And there's two different ways of doing that. There's one way, which is you take something and you make it into a holy object. For example, you take a cow and you use the skin to make a Torah scroll. Now that skin is not just not the skin of a cow, the skin is holy. The skin is so holy that we stand up when it comes into the room, we kiss it, we dance with it. It's the holiest thing. And you could use it to make tefillin. You can use it to make a mezuzah. You can take these physical objects and make them into holy objects. And that's an unbelievable thing. But even deeper than that, even deeper than that, is when you take a physical object and you make it into something holy, but the physical object doesn't change at all. Which means, for example, this beer or this seltzer or that Danish, right? If you take this, this liquid or this food and you make a brach on it, what you're doing is you're taking that this beer that could have been drank by anyone and gone for any purpose or anything, and you're now making it to a holy thing because you made a blessing on it. Even more than that, you're taking the energy and the sustenance from this beer or the seltzer or whatever it is that you're drinking, and you're using it for a holy thing. So now you have something which is still unholy, meaning the beer is not holy by itself. Even after you make a brach on it, it doesn't turn into a Torah. It's not like the parchment example where it turns into something holy. The beer stays in inanimate you know, unexciting, unholy, unspiritual object. But you now used it for something spiritual. And that is the most amazing thing you can do in this universe. That is the goal of everything, is to be able to take the world and use it for the divine purpose. That's the dream. So really to end off, and that's great that it's the final, the final Mishnah, is that the idea, meaning really, I thought I forgot exactly the title we put on the flyer, but it says, what is the purpose of creation? Why, why are you alive? That's the word, why are you alive? The answer why are we alive is very simple. Follow the Torah. That is the blueprint for your life. That is why you are alive. If you have a question of why you're alive, the Torah is going to tell you. Every person is individual and in how. The Torah is vast. This is not a cheap answer where it's like, oh, just look in the Torah and whatever you find it. The Torah will guide you. It has everything that you need. And if you don't know how to apply the Torah, you can ask a friend who you respect. You can ask your local rabbi. You can ask... You know, if you don't trust your local rabbi, you can go to a different rabbi. You can go to your previous rabbi. And God willing, you will find the, uh, what you're looking for. Okay. Thank you, Asha.